warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon, in today for Julia Chatterley. And ahead on today's program, miraculous rescues in Turkey and Syria more than one week after the region's devastating earthquake. Officials there fearing that time to save trapped victims is running out. And yet voices still being heard in the rubble. We are live in Turkey with the latest. Ukrainian troops begin training on advanced Leopard 2 tanks in Poland amid fears of an upcoming Russian military offensive. NATO Secretary General saying that Ukraine must get the weapons it needs to, quote, win this war. Plus, the U.S. just out with new important economic numbers. The first look at the state of consumer inflation in 2023. Consumer prices easing now for the seventh straight month year over year, up by 6.4 percent. That is the smallest annual rise since October 2021. Those numbers, however, were a bit higher than expected. On a month-over-month basis, however, prices rose an expected half a percent. Let's take a look at U.S. stocks. You can see they're volatile pre-market as investors really try to get their heads around this data. Wall Street coming off a strong day of trade on Monday with all the major averages up by more than 1%. Let's take a look at Europe. Europe also appears higher across the board as well. It's a busy show, as always. Let's begin with today's inflation number. Paul LaMonica is here with me now. So, Paul, when you look at this report, I have it here. What are you seeing in terms of where inflation is cooling and perhaps more importantly, where it isn't? Yeah, what's very interesting, Raul, is it doesn't seem as of yet that inflation is cooling all that much in the housing market. If you look at the shelter component of CPI, that definitely contributed a big portion of that increase. So I think that there may be some investors that will take a little bit of heart from that fact and notice that other areas of the economy, we are starting to see disinflation kick in, a slowdown in the level of price increases. But make no mistake, this is still a high enough number that it will likely justify the Fed raising rates again by a quarter of a point at least one time and maybe a couple of more times. I think a lot of people are going to look very closely now at the retail sales numbers that come out tomorrow. If the consumer still looks strong, then it's another example of this economy continuing to be hot and the Fed's going to try and cool that off. Paul, I think it's a great point in terms of retail sales and what this tells us about the consumer, because one of the things that we've also seen that is also troubling in terms of the health of the consumer is when you look at inflation where it's still rising the most, it's categories that are necessities, shelter, as you mentioned, food, electricity, apparel, vehicle insurance, and all of those things. And so when you think about the health of the consumer, we know the consumer has remained resilient, but you look at numbers and categories like this and you wonder for how long? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the consumer strength has been a pleasant surprise. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the job market remains strong. We have job gains at a pretty healthy clip. The unemployment rate is near a half century low. Jobless claims are very low. There have been some high profile layoff announcements uh, at a lot of uh, media and tech companies. But despite that, the national job market is still pretty strong. Wages are growing up, are going up, excuse me. So that's why consumers continue to spend. Paul, as you know, when we heard from Chair Powell last week, he said that 2023 will be a year of significant declines. To be fair, this is only the January report. There is a lot of 2023 left. But do you think that this report is the beginning of what looks like significant declines? Because I think some would argue inflation is not decelerating nearly as quickly enough as it should be. No, it definitely is not. And I think that is one of the issues that a lot of market skeptics have been pointing out for some time. Inflation remains sticky 
And this goal that the Fed has of getting inflation down to 2% on an annualized basis, that may eventually happen, but that's going to take a pretty long time and maybe more interest rate hikes to get there. You know, there are hopes that maybe we get to the threes, but even a 3% handle for annualized prices seems like a long time away when we're still in the sixes. It's mm, a great point. Paula Monica, good to have you on the program today. Thank you. And today's inflation number really showing the challenges facing the economy and policymakers. Prices are cooling off, though not as much as some were hoping. It mirrors recent forecasts from the IMF. Growth is looking better than previously predicted, but Kristalina Gorgieva told Richard Quest at the World Government Summit, it's nothing to celebrate. I am not an, an English native speaker, but what we project is less bad, not good. So we are still in a difficult time. Why? Because growth this year is slowing down vis-a-vis -vis the previous year from 3.4% to 2.9%. And because inflation has not quite evaporated yet. Why we are more positive? We are more positive for three reasons. One, because in the United States and in, in the EU, labor markets are remarkably resilient. People have jobs. When people have jobs, even if prices are high, they still spend. Two, China has finally opened up and their economy is perking, contributing to global growth. Three, because we have seen surprisingly good results of central banks tightening up financial conditions and inflation finally trimming down, although the fight is not yet won. Oh, it's far from one. You say it is trimming down. The problem is traditional economics requires there to be an increase in unemployment mm -hmm. if you're going to bring inflation down to target. I don't like saying it, but that's the reality. What uh, we would see is some increase in unemployment, but from an incredibly low But we're not, seeing, we're not seeing that weakness in labor markets, which suggests that there's going to have to be a good few more doses of monetary tightening. We will see uh, monetary tightening with us this year, but not anymore we are projecting this tightening to continue way into 24. And let me stress that we have markets that are in love with good news and they do not keep their ears open for the more neutral, new, nuanced message they're getting from the Fed, from the European Central Bank. So what is happening is Chair Power says we're seeing headline inflation moderating, and then he says, but the job is not yet done. Markets hear the first part of the, se the sentence, 
they don't the second. Meantime, back here in the U.S., we are learning more about one of the flying objects shot down by the military over the weekend. A Pentagon memo says that the mysterious object taken down over Canada on Saturday was a, quote, small metallic balloon. Meanwhile, the U.S. Navy has released these new images showing the suspected Chinese spy balloon that was shot down off the coast of South Carolina. Orrin Lieberman joins us now with more. Orrin, is the Pentagon saying much more about at least these three most recent objects, where they originated from, and what we know about their purpose? No, still no more information on that front. They're not even describing them as anything more than objects. They haven't gone on to say balloons, sizes, except for much smaller than the Chinese surveillance balloon. The first one shot down uh, this past Friday was described as about the size of a small car. But there are still a tremendous number of questions about where they came from, what their purpose was, where they were heading. Frankly, speed and and capabilities, the U.S. has said, and the National Security Council have said, it appears they didn't have the uh, technology or capability to surveil or maneuverability. But that still leaves a tremendous amount of questions here on, frankly, what these objects were or, again, what their intent was. We do have basic information of these objects shot down uh, uh, three in three days on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The object shot down over Alaska was described by U.S. officials as metallic in nature. The object shot down over the Yukon Territory, Northwest Canada, on Saturday was described as a metallic balloon with a payload, some sort of weight hanging underneath it. And then the object uh, shot down on Sunday over Lake Huron was described as octagonal in nature. So simply an eight-sided object of some sort that has now sunk in incredibly deep water in Lake Huron. We have also learned that in the attempt to shoot down that object over Lake Huron on Sunday, the most recent downed object, the F-16 that took that shot with a heat-seeking missile missed the first shot, and they were forced to take a second shot. We learned that last night. Now, on the ongoing recovery efforts, it seems these efforts on the Chinese balloon shot, over, shot down over the coast of South Carolina and the other balloons are very much going in different directions. We have learned from a defense official that with the Chinese surveillance balloon, they have recovered a, quote, significant portion of that, including electronics and the structure. So the FBI will begin analyzing that to see what can be learned. On the other balloons, a senior administration official raised the possibility this morning that they may not be able to recover those objects, or rather objects, not balloons, simply because of where they were shot down. Ten miles off the coast of northern Alaska, in a very remote part of the Yukon Territory in Canada, and then in very deep water in the Great Lakes. So there is the possibility now that they won't be able to find or recover these objects, which makes them even more difficult to figure out what really was going on here. Rahel? And Orrin, also a possibility, I imagine, that we'll likely be speaking much more about these objects because I believe it was Kirby who said that they've essentially widened their aperture, right? They're looking for more, and so essentially they're finding more? Essentially, yes. There are radars, NORAD radars, that look for objects coming into U.S. skies and and NORAD airspace. Traditionally, these were set to look at larger, faster-moving objects, such as, for example, a Russian bomber testing U.S. response time. They've refined how these radars search to make them look for slower-moving objects and smaller-moving objects, which is why in rapid succession they found three more objects. A defense official tells CNN they're still trying to refine this process to really hone in on what these radars are searching for so that you can find anything that is truly a national security threat without finding smaller objects or birds in the sky that force you to scramble NORAD fighters. So that process of refining the radars is still ongoing at this point. And ongoing, many more questions. Oren Lieberman, thanks for helping us understand it a bit more. And we will have more First Move after the break.
Welcome back to First Move to Turkey and Syria now, where rescuers say they can still hear voices of those trapped beneath the rubble. The death toll approaching 38,000 people. And yet there have been phenomenal stories of survival, like the second of two brothers rescued 198 hours after the earthquake hit. It's a desperate search and frigid temperatures to try and reach anyone still alive. The devastating earthquake reduced some towns and cities to little more than piles of concrete and twisted metal. Jamana Koreche has this report. Well, eight days on since Turkey was struck by a devastating earthquake and rescue teams say they are still hearing voices from beneath the rubble. A 10-year-old girl in the early hours of Tuesday morning was pulled out and finally rescued. But the window for finding survivors is closing very, very quickly. And this is now shifting from more of a rescue effort to more of a recovery effort. And the focus really now is on providing aid and support to those impacted by the earthquake. Thousands of people left homeless as a result. And we've been visiting some of the aid donation centers here in Istanbul. Volunteers at one center working around the clock to sort through these donations, including blankets, clothes, toiletries, medication and electric heaters, because, of course, it is so cold in the southern eastern part of the country. But the message that we're hearing from coordinators is that they need more support, more donations, more aid, not only from the Turkish government, but also from the international community. But it has to be said that the aid program here in southeastern Turkey and across the country has proven far more robust than the aid entering northwest Syria. The UN, uh, according to a statement, has now reached an agreement with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to open a further two uh, crossings from Turkey into northwestern Syria in order to allow aid to get across. But there is still the question of cross-line aid transfers, that is, aid that has been sent to Damascus, which is under government control, being transferred onwards to the northwest rebel-held territories uh, of Syria. Now, the government says and claims that they will allow aid to be transferred through this route. However, that hasn't happened yet. And aid groups say they haven't been offered a timeline or any routes that they may be able to use. And they are in desperate need of this aid. More than four million people in northwest Syria were already heavily dependent on humanitarian assistance as a result of years and years of war at the hands of President Bashar al-Assad. And now their lives have been completely devastated uh, once again. But the message from the White Helmets who have been leading on that uh, search and rescue effort is that this is simply too little, too late. Nanda Bashir in Istanbul. And I want to bring in now Jamana Koreche. She joins me live, live from Antakya, Turkey, where Jamana rescue efforts are ongoing. Walk me through what you're still seeing there on the ground and at what point authorities call off the rescue. Well, Rahel, just to explain to you where we are, we just drove into uh, Hatay, one of the hardest hit provinces in this earthquake. And it's the, the level of destruction here is just stunning. I have never seen anything like this before. I mean, we had one man coming up to us describing this as a war zone, but there were no bombs, saying that this is what an apocalypse would look like. And it really is. I mean, it's very hard to find a single building here that hasn't been impacted by Our thanks to Jamana Koreche there. Of course, signals are very difficult uh, there in Turkey, understandably. Jamana, thank you. 
Well, I want to turn down to U.S. stocks not getting much love on this Valentine's Day on Wall Street. Let's take a look. The major averages were on track for a lower open, still are. You can see the Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P still off about half a percent for the NASDAQ, but markets haven't opened yet, so we'll see. But that's after a mostly in-line report on U.S. inflation. Consumer prices easing a bit year over year in January, but prices coming in higher on a month-over-month basis. Prices for shelter showing no signs of slowing down either. To earnings now, earnings reports showing a continued resilient consumer. Hotel giant Marriott beating on earnings and also revenue and giving a positive outlook on consumer demand. Coca-Cola reporting higher than expected revenues. Coke saying that consumers remain resilient even with higher prices. Corporate layoffs, however, still making headlines. Ford announcing that it will cut some 3,800 jobs in Europe as it doubles down on its transition to EV, electric vehicles, that comes out to some 11% of its European workforce. John Petridis joins me now. He is the Portfolio Manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. John, good to have you on the program today. Thanks for having me on. So what more do you make of this report today? Largely coming in line with expectations, but I have to wonder, is inflation accelerating quickly enough? Well, I, I think the issue is that investors are getting and the stock market are getting a little too complacent, expecting the Fed to uh, ease or maybe cut more than what the Fed is indicating by year end. And I think that's what's propelled the stock market rally out of the gate this year. And this CPI report does not uh, confirm that thesis at all. Uh, in fact, if, if you turn your attention to the bond market, uh, the bond market is heavily inverted on the yield curve, meaning you can get near 5% yield on a six-month treasury bill, mm. yet only 3.7% on a 10-year treasury note, a treasury bond. So the bond market is really upside down, expecting that rates are going to stay higher in the short term, but come down longer come down longer term as the economy slows. So and you have two something. very, very divergent uh, uh, reactions to what's going on with the CPI number. Yeah, and that's something the the banks certainly don't like to see. John, can I ask, when you get a report like this, inflation cooling still, but the job growth still robust, 500,000 jobs in the last month, the unemployment rate ticking to a new 50-year low of 3.4%. What do you make sense of that if you're the Fed? How do you make sense of that? Yeah, well, I, I think not only the Fed, also market uh, 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 market perception. You know, three months ago, the world was pretty convinced, at least from an investor standpoint, that we were heading for stagflation, that we were heading in a high inflationary environment, and the probability for recession was significantly higher. Now that's completely been turned upside down because the job report, as you pointed out, does not signal recession at all because the labor market is strong. And look, if you are unfortunately laid off from your job, for every one person unemployed, there's about two job openings. So you can find work if you want it. Uh, and, and with a job report, with an inflation report like this, where inflation numbers are coming down, that clearly does not signal stagflation. So if you're a Fed official, you're thinking that, hey, you know what, we may be sticking the landing here. Uh, on, on a soft landing in, engineering, in terms of engineering a soft landing. So I, I think the Fed is probably uh, pretty happy today from where they sat, you know, maybe called two or three months ago. Well, John, I'm glad you mentioned soft landing because now we're hearing a new term sort of come into the vernacular, and that's a no landing. Essentially, for our viewers, that's growth that doesn't slow, inflation remaining above the target, and the Fed essentially having to hike rates and keep them there for longer. Where do you stand on the debate? Well, growth is definitely going to slow. Remember, remember, we're not even one year to the point that the Fed 
uh, started raising interest rates. I mean, there is a massive time lag uh, of, of call it uh, you know 12 to 15 months that interest rates need to marinate in the economy to slow. So think about that. This time last year, the Federal Reserve was still at zero percent interest rates on the Fed funds rate, and now they're at five percent. So you know you've had this massive, really sharp rise in interest rates, uh, and, and that still is just taking hold into the broader economy. So you know as, as that marinates longer in the economy, uh, you, you know you, you will see the the underlying uh, economy slow more, which is what the Fed wants because ultimately that's going to help bring inflation down lower. John, it's a great point because it seems like we've done so much in so long. In fact, they have, right? I mean, we've seen the Fed funds rate go up about 500 basis points in a little less than a year, as you pointed out. So when we look at the markets, they're they're down now in pre-market, but so far it's been a relatively stronger start to the year. Do you think that the markets are reacting to this idea of a Fed pivot, or are we seeing any fundamentals at play here? I, I think I think the majority of the market reaction is based on the Fed pivot. Uh, company fundamentals are mixed, and that's probably being too polite. Uh, you have about 68, 69% of companies that reported so far have beaten Wall Street analyst expectations. Earnings expectations are coming down, yet the stock market continues to go higher, which means that valuations are becoming more expensive relative to fundamentals. So what, what you're hoping, though, is call it three to six months from now, we're at a position where uh, profit margins have troughed earnings have come down and the Fed is starting to talk and inflation has come down enough where the Fed could talk seriously about uh, easing monetary policy in 2024. So then you really have a nice setup where you get a part where the Fed is coming down, yet earnings are, 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 are turning around. So the question is, how much has the stock market priced in today and, and probably a bit too much ahead of itself? So, you know, w- we're definitely in the camp of expecting more volatility in the near term. In terms of industries that are already feeling the profit margin squeeze and perhaps have more to go, what industries are you looking at that are likely to continue to feel a squeeze? Yeah, well, you're clearly seeing it on technology. Um, You know, you're seeing it on the consumer end. Uh, You know, technology is really feeling the the, the pinch on uh, wage growth. Uh, That's why you're seeing, you know, technology companies uh, got fat, dumb and happy, for lack of a better phrase, during the pandemic and they overhired and they overexpanded and now that's coming home to roost so mm-hmm. now you're seeing that's the majority of the layoffs that you're seeing working through the system uh and and, and, and at the same time you're seeing labor expense there is probably too high uh it's going to be interesting to see how the consumer staples you know the stuff that we buy in the grocery store how they're reacting because they aggressively raised pricing last year and this year we're he- seeing some pushback on certain uh, consumer staples names that they're not going to be able to raise pricing as much as maybe the market had expected. And yet, listen, they have to do figure out how to do more with less. Uh, so, so, so you're feeling the commodity or the cost pressure throughout the entire system. Wage labor uh, inflation is is the is what's really now filtering through. Last year was more of a commodity price increase. Yeah. We should get some ease on commodity prices. Look, oil's been around seventy five, eighty dollars now for quite some time. You know, this year, uh, this time a year ago, we we're on the brink of uh, Russia's war with Ukraine, where oil spiked to you know close to one hundred thirty five dollars a barrel. So, so you so you're you're lapping easier comps on the commodity side. But now you're catching the pressure on the wage labor uh, inflation. And that's likely to remain for quite some time. Uh, John, unfortunately, I only have about 30 seconds left. But what names do you like for you, for your clients, for other portfolio managers? What names look good to you? 
Yeah, so it definitely depends. You could really, for the first time in a long time, investors are probably getting paid to be diversified. You're finding yield if you're in the bond market on short treasury bills and and short-term bonds. You're finding value in the energy space if you want some dividend income. And, you know, despite the run in tech, uh, there is value to be had on the growth side of things as well. So for the first time in a long time, or last year, if you owned anything but cash, you got, uh, you took it on the chin. This year, so far, it seems quite the opposite, that being in cash is probably the, the, the last place you want to be. You could spread it out uh, across multi-assets and pick up uh, good returns for yeah. uh, pres- presumably for 2023. Put that cash to work. John Petridis, great to have you today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And so to come on first move, I speak with the CEO of global chocolate maker Godiva about how it's providing aid to those who need it most in Turkey. That's coming up next. Welcome back. It is Valentine's Day, and normally we would spend this day talking to a company like Godiva about chocolate. But the Turkish-owned firm, like thousands across the region, has also been affected by the deadly earthquake and is now stepping in to help, providing more than $10 million of aid through shipments of supplies and financial donations, as well as specially produced products for the regions impacted by the disaster. Joining me now is Nortouch Aphrodite. She is the CEO of Godiva. Nortouch, thanks for being on the program today. Thank you for having me and happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. So as we said, Godiva is Belgian, but your parent company is Turkish. Help us understand some of uh, what you're trying to do to help the people of Turkey who clearly need it so much right now. Thank you. Thank you for all the prayers and support all over the world. Of course, it's a very difficult time for me and for my country, for my people. And we feel very sad about this big disaster. Something that gives us a little bit of comfort is that immediately after we heard bad news, my parent company, Yildiz Holding, and all the Godiva chocolatiers around the world united to provide support to the impacted people. We provided, volunteered team members also provided a lot of food supply, groceries, but also our retail stores provided material supplies as well as warm food from different country companies that are owned by my parent company. We feel very sorry uh, for the ones that lost their loved ones, their relatives during this unfortunate event and we will continue to support until the people recover and come back to their normal lives. And Nortouch, I, I do want to touch on Godiva's business in just a moment. But as I understand it, you yourself are Turkish. I mean, how are you feeling watching these images? I mean, it is horrifying and devastating to watch day after day what the people are going through there. I feel deeply sad. And you can understand that it is extremely difficult being away from my home country and from my loved ones. I'm watching the news, which makes me very sad. The one thing that supports me and the team, the team members who are also Turkish uh, at the company, that are global Godiva employees volunteered to support uh, the people impacted during this earthquake. Hmm. Nortaş, I do want to touch a bit on Godiva's business. Look, this is a time still of very high inflation. How, how is inflation and how are prices for some of the uh, inputs for chocolate doing for Godiva? I mean, last I checked, uh, cocoa was still up. I mean, how are prices for you? During uh, 
downturns, but also during good times, chocolate is a very interesting category. People consume chocolate when they are sad, when they are stressed, when they are happy. It's a very resilient category. And during COVID, we have seen lots of consumers looked for a me moment, a moment to reward themselves and looked for a quality chocolate product. Today, this trend continues, especially when the self-care trend is growing. People rather look for quality than low prices. Look, I can certainly attest to eating chocolate both on good days and on bad days, that much I can say. But I I do wonder sort of in terms of how you're dealing with higher prices, are your margins being uh, pressured at all or have you sort of maneuvered this high inflationary period? We have seen also increases in input materials, in logistics costs, in packaging materials. The first we do is to look into our operations to find opportunities to reduce our cost levels without compromising from our quality. One thing that we will not change, that we will not compromise, will be the quality of our ingredients, the quality of our processes and the artistry of our packaging. We would like to continue doing so, Uh, of course, at times of inflation, in order not to impact the quality, you need to increase prices, which we had to do last year. And so have you found that consumers are willing to continue to pay? I know you said that chocolate can be um, recession proof. Are you finding that consumers are willing to pay? And if so, are you seeing any signs of a softening consumer? We see that the consumers shop in more locations for more consumption occasions than before. And therefore, we introduced a larger variety of products from entry levels to high-end premium price points. You can buy a Godiva chocolate for $2, but also for $200. What we offer to our consumers are different options in different purchase points and uh, for different purposes. We made Godiva relevant for more purposes. Hmm. Nortouch Aphrodite, good to have you. She is the CEO of Godiva. Thank you. Thank you. And stay with CNN. Coming up, NATO Chief Jens Stoltenberg wants to get Ukraine the weapons it needs, but are allies ready to give more? We have the latest from the NATO Defense Minister's meeting in Brussels. Coming up. Welcome back. NATO defense ministers are gathering in Brussels for a two-day meeting. On the agenda, continued support and more firepower for Ukraine. Earlier, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg saying that allies must deliver Ukraine the weapons it needs. Take a listen. We need to ensure that Ukraine um, uh, gets the weapons uh, uh, it needs uh, to be able to uh, retake territory, liberate the lands and win this war and prevail as a sovereign independent nation. CNN international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson is following events. He joins us live from Warsaw. So, Nick, these new pledges, of course, come at a time when Ukraine says they urgently need it. Uh, What type of support are they offering up here? Well, what we've heard from the German defence minister today is a commitment to, for more ammunition, and that's been key. That gets to that core point that uh, Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, was raising. 
Essentially, Ukraine is using ammunition faster than its NATO allies and partners are, are, are making it. Uh, and that's a problem because this is a war of attrition. Russia has deep stockpiles um, and NATO wants Ukraine to win. Therefore, they have to increase ammunition production. So that does seem to be part of what's happening. But of course, production of ammunition crosses many platforms. It's not just for tanks that Germany has recently said, like Poland, that it will provide. But also that includes air defense missile systems. That will include the US-made HIMARS system. That will include all the rifles that the frontline troops have. Uh, so many different pieces of equipment. And this is a big project. And this is why you have these very frequent contact groups meetings so that so that all NATO members, allies, partners, supporters of Ukraine can figure out how best to do it together. So the message we're getting today seems to be fighter jets, this is what Ukraine wants. Yes, that's recognized, but not now. Important to get the air defense, the ammunition, the spare parts, the tanks, the fighting vehicles to do what the Secretary General said there, which was let Ukraine take territory. Uh, without all of these pieces, that's just not going to happen. And Nick, you also had access to the training of Ukrainian troops in those leopard tanks where you are in Poland. Tell us a bit more about that, because from my perspective, it seems like a, a quite accelerated timeline. It wasn't long ago that those tanks were uh, finally approved to be sent from Germany, and yet now they're already training. Huge. It's a, it's a huge uh, deal that they are finally training. It was a huge deal that the tanks were announced. The tanks themselves should begin to arrive in Ukraine by the end of next month. So that accelerated timeline that we're hearing about for the training, that should just about get these first crews we've seen in their training, just about get them ready for the delivery of those first tanks. After just a week of training, Ukrainian tank crews show off their new skills on a Polish gun range. The first time their Leopard 2 training has been put on display. The crews pulled direct from Ukraine's eastern battlefront. Too soon to say what's best about the Leopard 2, Ukraine's tank trainer says. But the machine is good quality, and what is most important, my soldiers like it a lot. They're training fast-tracked, 12 hours a day, six days a week, compared to the Polish standard, eight hours a day, five days a week. Polish instructors say the Ukrainians will be ready in a month. Most of them have some tank skills already, the Polish brigadier in charge says. They're so keen to learn, we have to hold them back. In peacetime, it's rare, if ever, that tank crews are raced through their training like this. It's a sign of how much they're needed at the front lines, that they're being accelerated through their Leopard 2 apprenticeship. Poland's president, who has been at the vanguard of pushing NATO allies to give Ukraine modern battle tanks, and is sending 14 of Poland's, came to meet the Ukrainian crews and see their progress. His visit providing big publicity for Poland's commitment to Ukraine and a flavor of what US President Joe Biden will hear when he visits next week, a pitch for a joint tank brigade. I hope that soon the brigades will be ready for Ukraine and also includes American Abrams tanks so that Ukraine can counter the Russian offensive. 
Ukraina mogła się The tanks and the training only part of readying this new force for war. The biggest challenge now is spare parts for these tanks. We are setting this task to the German defense industry. For the Ukrainian tank crews, patiently parked up and waiting through most of the Polish president's visit, priority is getting back to the war, even if that means the training is sped up. I think that the training time will be enough for us to get to grips with the technology, he says. We are lacking a lot of heavy armor like this. If we get it, it will be much better. On this training ground, perhaps more profound than tank skills honed, history in the making. The foundations of a fully modernized NATO-compatible Ukrainian army being laid. And uh, Poland does have real skin in this fight, if you will. They're not just training these crews, but for them, the war that's going on literally right on their border it is very, very real. Generations here in Poland have witnessed uh, Russians marauding their lands, even at one time taking, taking away their lands. Um, the, many Poles have ancestors who've been scattered across uh, the former Soviet Union. So the real threat here posed by Russia in its war in Ukraine is felt very strongly here. And that's something that President Duda certainly plays upon in his narrative. But just look at today, for example, um, two, uh, two Dutch fighter jets, F-35s, based here for NATO, inside Poland, for NATO, were scrambled to intercept or fly close to three Russian planes that were flying close to Poland's border in the north. This is very, very real for the Poles here. So their help in training the Ukrainians, it means a lot. And that's one of the things we're picking up on here. Mm, it's a good point, Nick. It's the, the here and now, of course, of the war, but also the potential future threat there for Polish people. Uh, Nick Robertson, thanks for joining us. Amid calls for further military support for Ukraine, chaotic scenes recorded by Ukrainian military drones in Donetsk may signal problems to come for Russian forces. CNN's David McKenzie has the details, and a warning his report does contain some disturbing images. Russian units pushing forward again and again, only to be obliterated by Ukrainian artillery, mines and drones. CNN analysis of multiple videos taken over the past fortnight show the Russians lost at least 30 tanks and armored personnel carriers in this area alone. And it seems several hundred soldiers. These units seem without leadership or tactics. As Russian soldiers scramble to take cover, they are mercilessly cut down. Russian tanks and fighting vehicles careen straight into well-placed minefields. At one point, the lifeless body of a Russian soldier gets entangled in tank tracks. These satellite images provided to CNN show the intense bombardment of the tree lines where Russian armor tried and failed to take cover, and a landscape littered with destroyed machines. President Putin's only comment on the fighting here, The Marine infantry are maintaining the operation just fine, he says. This very moment, they are fighting heroically. The UK says that Russians are losing soldiers at their highest rate since the start of the war. Even Russian military bloggers are venting their anger at the tactics and commanders. 
Only morons attack head-on the same heavily fortified place, writes one. Another demanding the general in charge be put on trial. If you see the tactics the Russians are using, does it look like they know what they're doing in that particular part of the front? It, it really doesn't. Um, it's, it's absolutely absurd that they've committed and they've tried to advance in a mechanized column that makes it a very vulnerable target. Still, it's part of an offensive that NATO's Secretary General thinks is now getting underway in earnest. Because we see what, what, what Russia does now, President Putin do now, is to send in thousands of thousands of more troops, um, accepting a very high rate of casualty, um, taking uh, big losses, uh, but putting pressure on the Ukrainians. In Vuladar, Ukraine's defenses are standing firm, even as Russia resorts to using what appear to be thermobaric weapons. But there are growing concerns that Ukrainian units are running critically short of artillery ammunition. The current rate of Ukraine's ammunition expenditure is many times higher than our current rate of production. This puts our defense industries under strain. Now, another problem for the Ukrainians, Elon Musk's SpaceX restricting use of Starlink satellite technology in their key drone program. Musk saying on Twitter, we will not enable escalation of conflict that may lead to World War III. The Ukrainians' use of drones has given them an important edge in this conflict, an edge that's badly needed as Russians make up for what they lack in quality through raw, overwhelming force. David McKenzie, CNN, Kyiv, Ukraine. Welcome back to First Move, taking another look at the action on Wall Street. And you can see the Dow is off about two-tenths of one percent. Let's call it 70 points right now. U.S. stocks mostly flat in early trading, although slightly lower. Way off, however, of their lows of the session. You can see the Nasdaq is also lower, just about flat. The S&P is off about one-tenth of one percent. That said, the latest U.S. inflation numbers doing little to ease fears that the Federal Reserve might have to raise interest rates by a greater than expected amount this year. Food and energy prices all heading higher month over month in January, although U.S. inflation did ease a bit overall year over year. And now to what was a scare in the air. A United Airlines flight nosediving thousands of feet after takeoff, dropping to within 800 feet of the Pacific Ocean before recovering. CNN's Gabe Cohen takes a closer look at what happened. Another alarming incident in U.S. aviation, a United 777 diving toward the ocean just after takeoff. It certainly felt like a roller coaster. Rod Williams was traveling home from vacation with his family. It's one of those things where you start counting your blessings. You start you know, asking yourself, is this the last time you're going to see your family? The flight takes off from Maui December 18th, climbs 2,200 feet, then suddenly plunges 1,400 feet toward the ocean, falling for 21 seconds, reaching just 775 feet above sea level before abruptly leveling out and rapidly ascending once again. The plane, which can carry more than 300 passengers, was mostly full, according to Williams. What and, did I actually, the and I actually want to take you live now to that press conference that we mentioned earlier. As you can see, you can see Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley in Brussels. Let's listen now to what they're saying. Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley. Secretary Austin will begin with some brief comments, followed by General Milley. I will call on the reporters. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. 
In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.